a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of 2 Kings, be in chapter 4. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible underneath the seat in front of you, that'll be page 309. As you turn there, just a reminder that we are going through a series on the prophets looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha. And we read of them beginning in 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah shows up, and then we move into 2 Kings, where Elisha begins his ministry. And this is coining this sort of a post-Easter series um, in the sense that we had Easter a few weeks ago. We celebrate, as we celebrate every Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus, but we give special attention to it on Easter. And one of the things I've asked you to kind of consider is, you know, what, what would it have been like to have been a follower of Jesus after the resurrection and the ascension? And you were still here. And though the promises of forgiveness of sins and the full restoration of his people and his creation were, were secured, but not here yet, coming, but secured, yet he was gone, what, what would you think, how, what would you need, <laughs> especially as life itself didn't necessarily change that much for you, and in some ways it changed by getting worse, as we know the early church was persecuted because of Jesus. And we asked the question, what, what might they need? And one of the things that they would need is grace to persevere. It's a good sort of post-Easter service or, or, or theme. And that's what we're taking with us as we look at these two prophets, because they minister at a time, and, and certainly the book that they're, that First Kings is, goes to a people at a time that they're in a tough spot. They're actually in captivity in Babylon. They have the promises of God to them. But life is not working out as they had hoped, and much of the life of, of Elijah and Elisha is pictures and glimpses of God's promises, which become grace for them to persevere as well in these places. And so that is a little bit about what we've been looking at and, um, and where we are. And as we come to chapter 4, last week we were in 1 Kings 21, and all of a sudden now we're in chapter 2, King, uh, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 4. So a lot has happened. Uh, we'll touch on the transition in this sermon from the prophet Elijah to Elisha. But you've had, you've had King Ahab, who we looked at in the previous weeks. He's dead. Uh, another king has taken his place. And the, the point here is that time has moved on, yet God is still here. And he is still reminding them of his presence and of his love for them through his prophet. So with that, I'm going to read sections of chapter 4 as we come to this um, first rule. It's not the first thing that Elisha does, but it's, it's a major section for him as we look at these miracles that he performs. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in chapter 4 of 2 Kings. I'll begin in verse 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except the jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons 
and pour into all not to or not or sorry pour into all these vessels and when one is full set it aside so she went from him from him and shut the door behind him and her sons and she poured uh, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and she told the man of God, Elisha, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. I'm going to skip down now to verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw that the child lying dead on his, saw the child of the Shunammite woman on his bed dead. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and he lay on, on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hand. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon himself, upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his, opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, and she picked up her son and went out. Verse 38. And Elijah came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. And one of them went out into the field to gather herbs. And found a wild vine and gathered from it, from it his lap full of wild uh, gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He, being Elisha, said, Then bring flour. And they threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men. And they that they may eat, and there was no harm in the pot. Verse 42, a man came from Bel Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning, and we pray now that as we look at your word, that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. We pray that you would do a miracle, and by miracle this day, that you would soften hardened hearts, that we would respond to your truth, to your gospel, that we would believe, and we ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Since we're talking about miracles this morning, I want to share a miracle with you. This happened probably a month or two ago, and some of you know we have four daughters, and this involves them, so I'm not going to use their names. I'm just going to use uh, the descriptor of the older sister, 
and the younger sister. Okay? Uh, we'll start with the younger sister. Younger sister had a, a, a project due at school, and, um, and we, mom and dad, had been down this road before with this younger sister. Um, not real interested in hearing what mom and dad had to say about doing bits of the project, not waiting to the last minutes. Um, we got, you know, and, and, and as best as we could, got onto her a little bit about getting this work done. The project due date's going to be here before you know it. And of course, it gets here, it's not done, and we're sort of in this moment of chaos in our house. Um, here we are again, another school project, mom and dad doubling down, making sure this doesn't happen again. But guess what happens? Again, the project's not done. Nobody's listened to mom and dad. It's the day before the project is due. The younger sister crying, uh, angry, yelling at mom and dad, well, I guess I'll just get a zero. Mom and dad saying, you're, you're right, you're going to get a zero. We don't care about this anymore. And, um, you know, it wasn't a real great moment for us, but um, I think we felt pretty good about that, actually. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to fail something, might as well fail something in elementary school. Anyways. Uh, we're doing a parenting seminar right after church, <laughs> if you want to come and join us. Um, to say the least, right, we, mom and dad, we, we were kind of at our wits end with this, and we kind of had to leave it alone. We backed away. We went to another room and, I don't know, watched this TV program. I have no idea. We just tried to get away from it all. And I'll be honest, from my perspective, I just kind of forgot about the project, and I was actually okay with her getting a zero. Um, and as I walk into the kitchen, though, I, I'm getting a glass of water or something, and I notice something going on uh, in the dining room next door at the table. And all of a sudden, I see the younger sister, and she's tears are away from her eyes, and she's earnestly looking at her project, and she's, you know, involved and engaged. But why is she involved and engaged? It's because her older sister somehow has decided to come alongside of her it was the sweetest thing in the world. I had to go get Ada. I said, you need to come look at this. And we tiptoed in there. We didn't want to disturb anything. But older sister had come next to younger sister. And I kid you not, like, we're going to work through this project together. I'm going to help you with this. Um, I immediately went and, and transferred as much money into her college account as I could. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. Now, what made this act of compassion, if you will, even more so was it was that morning, but certainly throughout the week, we were getting a lot of, of conflict between this older sister and this younger sister. Because older sister's at a place where, well, I'm just cooler than you. Um, I don't need to waste my time with you. And younger sisters can be annoying in that regard. But here, man, we got what I'm calling a miracle, this act of compassion towards the younger sister. It was, it was literally a window into her heart. And, and this made mom and dad very, very happy. Um, and the project that she actually did really well, younger sister did well on the project. Now, the Bible doesn't call this a miracle. Mom and dad call this a miracle. Um, but I think, I think what it does is it, is it illustrates for us this topic of miracle that we're looking at this morning, especially in the way that God tends to use miracles. And he uses them for a lot of reasons. But the primary thing that I want you to see is that he uses them to give us a window into his heart. And we'll see that miracles play the purpose of being redemptive in nature, so they have a focus. But in and through those miracles, we, we, see it, we see into God's heart. And one of the things we see, especially in the life of Elijah with these miracles, is how compassionate God is towards his people. 
And, it, and it's not lost on me that when we get into the, old, the New Testament, and if you've been in the church, right, um, and if you've you know, read the Gospels, you can't read 2 Kings 4 and not think, is this straight out of you know, Luke? Is this straight out of Matthew? As we see Elisha doing these things, we get to the Gospels, we see Jesus doing these things. And uh, some of you may know this, but Jesus is often referred to as our older brother. And in that way, when we think about the way that God displays his ultimate compassion to us, um, we see it in Jesus, who is our older brother. But we get windows to it here in 2 Kings 4 that I want us to see so that we can understand fuller the, the, the compassion that God has for us in Christ. They say that, you know, in order to understand the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament. And I thought that was just a bunch of made-up stuff, but it's actually really true. And I hope that by at least looking at 2 Kings 4, if you've never been in this book before in your life, that as we get through it, you will not only understand the New Testament better, but you'll actually see Jesus better. You'll, you'll see him as, as he comes onto the scene to be, uh, which is the fullest display uh, of God's heart uh, and especially the fullest display of his compassion for us. So let's do that as we look at 2 Kings chapter 4 and as we look at the topic of miracles. Um, if you're taking notes, uh, three points that I want to look at to navigate this text. I, I do want us to talk about the transition from Elijah to Elisha and what that means. So we need to talk about that transition uh, of these two prophets. Uh, we want to look at the miracles of Elisha, which will be the bulk of the text, and then what the miracles point to, okay? So the transition of Elijah to Elisha, and then the miracles of Elisha, and then what the miracles point to. So let's do that now. Let's take that first one, the transition from these two prophets, Elijah to Elisha. Um, chapter 4, 5, and really most of 6 in 2 Kings are almost entirely miracles. And, you, you know, we, we left chapter 3, which we didn't even look at chapter 3 last week. But we, if you read chapter 3, it, it, it sort of ends a narrative. And then chapter 4 picks up, and it's just these miracles. And uh, in chapter 4, we see Elijah uh, help this widowed woman out of uh, the, depth, the debt that she had to keep her children. Um, we see that he brings life to a woman who is barren. In that text, the Shemanite woman, uh, but then also brings life to her dead son. Elisha acts later to purify a stew in the midst of a drought that would have been poisonous and killed those with him. And then we see at the end, he takes a gift from a very faithful man and multiplies it to feed those in need who are with him. On the one hand, some of these miracles are familiar to us, not just to the New Testament, if that's where we are more familiar, but the first two miracles here, especially of the widow's oil and of, 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 of the Shumanite son, they actually should be causing us a little bit of deja vu if we've sort of remotely been paying attention to the, to the series. Didn't we just read about this in the life of Elijah back in 1 Kings 17. And I would say, yes, we did. At the same time, right, there are a lot of more miracles that we get to. But we just, you know, back with Elijah, we read about the widow's oil and another uh, miracle where um, he provided for this woman and for Elijah. And we read about um, him raising this woman's uh, child who died uh, from death. And now we read it again, but we also get more. 
We get more miracles. So many that it's actually hard to think of a stretch in the Old Testament up to this point that reads like this. But one of the reasons for this is the transition from the prophet Elijah to the prophet Elisha and what it signals first and foremost to God's people. Uh, Briefly, let me just explain this. With, With the transition, the writer is simply telling the reader that God is still with his people. In other words, the spirit that came upon Elijah, um, we remember Mount Carmel and that big sort of contest between God and Baal. That same spirit that has now come upon Elijah, it is the same. And so the continuity that we see, especially in these first two miracles with Elijah, the widow's oil and the Shumanite son, is saying that God is still at work now as he was then. This is the way that he confirms this to his people. And this would have signified uh, something bigger than just their miracles, that God was present with his people, and he had not forgotten them or left them, even in the midst of their present unfaithfulness, as we've been looking at. So deja vu, right, is actually a good thing here as we see Elisha succeed Elijah and as we see the duplication of these miracles. Okay, same God working through Elijah is now working through Elisha, right? But with Elisha... Hopefully, I'm saying, this could get confusing if I use those words too much. But with Elisha, we notice that God is not only working in similar ways, but he's working in fuller ways. And this gets to how the transition of prophets shows something about God himself. As I said, there's a lot more uh, miracles when we get into this text than we saw with the life of Elijah. And one word that comes to mind as you read these and as you keep kind of getting the sense of them in this chapter is that the ministry of Elisha seems elevated in one sense compared to that of Elijah. As if to say one greater has come after Elijah. Now, why might this be? And this causes us to have to go back to chapter 2 in 2 Kings and look real quick at that transition. And I'm going to read something for you so you don't feel like you have to go back to this yet. But this has everything to do with the passing of the baton, as it were, from the prophet Elijah to the prophet Elisha. If I go back to 2 Kings verse 9, I'll read this. When they had crossed, this is Elijah who knows he's going to be taken up. This is, this is the end, his swan song, as it were. Uh, He's leaving with Elisha, and there's a lot more dialogue that goes on there. But this is what happens. As they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. And if you do not see me, it shall not be for you. And as they went, still went on and had talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Now, what does it mean to have a double portion of something? Essentially, it's possession. It's receiving something. Now, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean to have a double of what one has. Right? It doesn't mean for Elisha to have double the power that Elijah had. What it means is to receive a double portion and to use it in the biblical context of one's inheritance. 
When we hear of people asking of a double portion in the Bible, it is usually in the context of inheritance or property. According to Deuteronomy 21, 17, a double portion goes to the firstborn, the oldest. And it would mean, however, you know, however one divided up the family estate, the oldest would get their portion plus a double amount of that. And this was custom in this day. The firstborn got everything. Sorry, that's just the way it was. But for, for many reasons, one of which was this is, it was his responsibility to care for the rest of the family. This is the context in which we hear and read of this strange to us, perhaps, phrase, double portion. But for Elijah, you notice, he's not asking for a double portion of his inheritance. What is he asking for? A double portion of Elijah's spirit or the spirit of God. And one reason for this is so that Israel will know that he is Elijah's successor and thus a prophet of the Lord. Comforting and convincing a crowd who has just lost their beloved leader, right? That was, that was risky business if you are familiar with the Old Testament. So a double portion of the prophet's spirit is actually a good thing to ask for in order to be able to continue on displaying uh, the, the works that allow people to know, okay, this is really the prophet. But whose spirit is this? Well, it's God's spirit. And notice that this spirit is not Elijah's to give. So Elijah tells him, if you see me as I am being taken up, then it will be yours. If not, then it, will, it shall not be. In other words, that request is up to the Lord all the best. And as Elijah goes up in a whirlwind, as, we, as I read to you there, Elijah sees it. Therefore, we know that the double portion is granted to him, a double spirit of the Lord. Right, this is a lot of backstory. What's the payout here? This transition of prophets, it doesn't just signal God's continued presence with his people, but it will show his people something more about God himself. As a prophet, you are the word of God to the people in, in many ways. You intercede between God and the people in many ways. Therefore, you are in some ways the face of God to the people. Therefore, a double portion of God's spirit will mean then that Elisha will reflect a double portion of who God is, which is to say Elisha will reflect the heart of God to his people in deeper and fuller ways. Up to this point in Elijah's ministry, as we have seen, God has shown himself to many as the all-powerful God who defeated Baal on Mount, Mount Carmel. That is certainly the climax of his ministry in many ways. Through Elisha, though, we will see his heart, specifically the compassion that he has for his people. Uh, over, it was 2009, I think, uh, Michael Jordan, who played for the Chicago Bulls, was being inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame. Uh, there were several others who were being inducted that day, but Michael Jordan was clearly the biggest one. Um, definitely the best basketball player to ever live. Changed my mind after the service. Also that day who was being inducted was a guy named David Robinson who played for the San Antonio Spurs. Both of these guys, great athletes, had wonderful careers. When you go and you watch this, um, these speeches, um, something kind of comes out that changes, changes my perspective of these two. 
okay? As I said, both great athletes, both were on the Olympic team together, both had monstrous, monstrous careers. But Jordan gets up and he gives his speech for about 26 minutes, and then David Robinson gives his for about seven. And what you're, you know, you're assuming that both these two should be inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame, what you're not assuming is what they begin to reveal about themselves. And I've probably talked about this before with some of you, but when you go watch Jordan's, it wasn't, it wasn't a good view of, of what's in his heart. <laughs> um, he talked for about 26 minutes about himself, why he deserved this. Um, it's actually, in many ways, commentators call it a low point in his uh, career. David Robinson, on the other hand, spending seven minutes, a fraction of the time that Jordan did, spent most of his time thanking and naming his wife and kids, um, talking about how all of this pales in comparison to what they mean to him. And as you're watching this, right, you're just sort of being taken in. Yes, I expect these guys to be in the Hall of Fame, great athletes. But what is David Robinson offering? Like, what does he begin to do there as he talks about this? He's offering a window into his own heart. There is something more there, right? To just sort of call David Robinson a basketball player after watching this would be just awful, right? Wouldn't do justice to who he really was. Might I suggest that this is sort of what we're about to experience as we enter the life of Elisha. Yes, he's going to do a lot of amazing things, but they're not really about him, which is really, that's always, the prophet is not doing these things because it's about the prophet. It's about what this communicates to God. Both Elijah and Elisha, great, great men of the Lord, prophets, all, all that. But one of them is about to do something that's about to show you a window into the heart of who God is. And this is, this is where we get to the miracles in the text. Through Elisha, we are going to see God's heart in deeper and fuller ways. And, though, and through Elisha, God will not just be this sort of transcendent, all-powerful God who defeats Baal on Mount Carmel, right? We know that he is that. Instead, we will get to see the heart of God in ways that we haven't, especially his compassion for his people. And how does God do this through Elisha? He does it through miracles. And so let's, let's turn to that now. The second point, the miracles of Elisha. All right, this is the transition, though, of the prophets. We had to talk about this. Um, it is sort of a stark transition um, as God begins to move into a different way to reveal himself as Elisha asks for a double portion of his spirit. As I said at the beginning of the service, miracles garner um, a lot of attention from us, as some of us even, maybe we're not sure what, what, what to think about the miracles of the Bible. Were they really true? Did they mean to point to uh, you know, different, you know, they didn't really happen, but maybe they were there to point to something else. And I think just for the sake of miracles, since we haven't really talked about it much from the pulpit, um, certainly in the PCA, if you're going to be a minister in the PCA, and certainly I am one, I have to do, that's why I'm here. Um, <laughs> But it's a weird way to just to say we believe that the miracles happened the way that they were described in the Bible. Um, and that is our tradition. Miracles are not, though, we would say, this sort of supernatural thing that happens in the sense that they are outside of God's providence. Miracles are under, better understood, as Jack Collins, my seminary professor, said, as supernatural things that God wills to happen in a given moment differently than it had up to that point. They are miracles only to us because of our limited nature, right, and the nature of the world and what God has created for us to live in. 
For example, if an, if an axe head began to float and levitate, right, that would be a miracle to God. It would just be God acting in a way differently than he has already, given the world that he has created for us to live in. Why this is important for us this morning, wherever you sit with miracles, is that it helps us to understand something important about them. And that miracles, rarely if ever, does God choose to do something like this uh, without a special purpose in mind. And that purpose in the Bible is almost always redemptive. Um, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not, miracles don't show up all over the place. Actually, they're in very sort of specific places throughout Scripture, places where God is emphasizing and moving redemptively through his people as he has promised. The first of those places, just to give you some, some overview, uh, you might think of Exodus with Moses leading God's people out of Egypt and the parting of the sea and living out in the wilderness and you know, being providing for them with manna falling from the sky, right? That's the first sort of instance of miracles that we get. The next is really Elisha and Elisha, or you could say actually before that, the entering of the promised land. But then Elijah and Elisha, at this period in time, we don't see miracles like this until Jesus shows up again some five, six hundred years later. Um, and then we see miracles as the church is starting. All right, so these major points of redemption um, is what all of these periods of miracles have in common. They are also periods of suffering and hardship, which means that a lot of times miracles are often uh, brought into God's story. Why? To show his compassion for his people. John Oleve says it this way, that miracles, they come at key times of sovereign acts of powerful compassion of the God who is present with his people. And we see this especially in the miracles Elisha performs in our text this morning and who they are performed for. Note, if you are familiar with the New Testament, when you read chapters 4 and 5, right, you initially thought, this is just like Jesus, and you're right. But while we are more prepared for these miracles, having been made aware of the ministry of Jesus, Elisha's miracles are a very different level of compassion from what we have typically seen in a prophet up to this point, and it's important for us to, to read them as such. But all these miracles that we just looked at in chapter 4, they're all miracles first of restoration. Restoration, right? The widow who owes debt or faces possibly losing her children, Elisha restores her by creating a way to pay the creditor off, selling the jars of oil, and then having enough to live off of for the rest of her life. The Shunammite woman, right, and her son, Elisha, brings life to what is barren or empty, which we didn't read that part of the story, but she couldn't have a child. And, and, and there's themes of barrenness all throughout the Bible, and it has its own specific meaning, but God brings life to what is lifeless, he restores that component of the fall, as, you, as it were. But then the child dies, and here Elisha brings that child back. The stew that becomes poisonous is restored by adding flour. Here, Elisha reverses the effects of this wild vine in order to care for the men around him. The hundred men who are fed from the first fruits of barley and grain, right, are not only fed, but there are leftovers. Again, God's abundant provision for those in need. This is the first thing we notice about these miracles. They are signs of restoration. But second, I don't want you to miss the scope of the miracles, who they go out to. And we sometimes refer to this as the diversity of the miracles. And this is what also would cause the readers to be a little bit, this is different. Who do these miracles involve? 
First, they involve a no-name widow about to lose her kids. Next, they involve a wealthy woman who doesn't really need anything. The sons of the prophets are those who receive the next, are the next beneficiaries of the, of, of the miracles. And the sons of the prophets is just sort of a, a, this group of faithful followers. You might call it a cohort for prophets. Um, we would also lump this group of people in with the 7,000 remnant that Elijah spoke of that God is preserving. But then lastly, a man from Baal Shalisha, who is not the object of the miracle, but is where the miracle comes from and his gift of first fruits. And where is this place, Baal Shalisha? It's in the middle of nowhere. The fact, though, that he is bringing first fruits, something we haven't heard of in a while, should tell us that he is a faithful follower of the Lord. But what am I getting at here as far as the scope of these miracles? What's different? They're happening in so many different places. And, and one other observation that you need to remember is that most of the time when God performs miracles, it is, it is to keep moving forward right, the promises that he has made to his people and to move that promise through those lines. And so we think of the things that he's done through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, people who are of the line of which God promised Jesus will come through. These people have nothing to do with that. They're random bystanders, if you will, of people who are receiving the beneficiary of these miracles, which is to say that this is the scope of which God will reveal himself, but more importantly, reveal his compassion for his people. It isn't just for a select few anymore. And as we take this in, we are saying to ourselves, one greater certainly has come after Elijah. And this gets actually to our final point, what the miracles point to. If we were to say that the ministry of Elijah, we got tastes of God's compassion with Elijah, we are getting a double portion of the heart of God towards his people. So what do these miracles point to? All miracles, all signs in the Bible point to a future reality. There's, there's a point for the miracle there and the restoration that we just looked at, but there's something else that it's pointing us to. And if we would agree that all those miracles that Elijah is, is performing are miracles of restoration, which reveal God's compassion, not just to a certain group of people, but to everyone, then we are beginning to be prepared for God's ultimate, full, the fullness of his compassion as these miracles point to their reality, which is Jesus Christ. When you think about a sign, right, you think about if you're driving down the road and you see a construction sign on the side of the road, right, you know that that, mirror, that sign has sort of two points. There's, there's something for you to do immediately, which is begin to prepare for the construction, but it's actually pointing to a future reality that in, in, in a few miles or whatever the sign says, you will come upon the reality of what that sign points to. And friends, that is always what is happening with miracles and that is why when you read 2 Kings 4, especially if you are custom with Jesus and his ministry, you're thinking, this looks like Jesus, and you are right. But if we don't start here, right, if we don't understand that, that these, these miracles are demonstrating a window into God's heart, which is revealing the compassion of God, then by the time that we get to the New Testament, right, we're having to figure things out instead of recognizing that, oh, not only is this demonstrating the compassion of God, this is the fullest expression 
of the compassion of God, which is Jesus Christ. As we pick back up from this point, all miracles work this way of pointing to a future reality. And this means for Elisha and these miracles of restoration that they point to a final day of restoration, the day when one greater would come after Elisha. If the widow's oil, if we just go back through these and you probably caught it as we read them, if the widow's oil paid her debts and then some, what would be greater that might follow? If the miracle of life being produced where there is no life, both in the barrenness of the woman and in the death of the son, what could be greater that might come after? If the effects of the fallen world that bring forth poisonous wild vines can be reversed, what could be greater that might follow? The miracles of Elisha do anything for us this morning is to remind us not of Elijah, but of Jesus as we would read about him in the Gospels. Jesus is the one whom the signs and the miracles of restoration in 2 Kings 4 points to. And just as Elijah's ministry is elevated with a double portion of God's spirit, Jesus' ministry, right, is elevated tenfold as well. When Jesus raises the widow's son in Luke 7, right, from the dead, like Elijah, Jesus just speaks this word into existence. He doesn't pray for it. Why? Because this is the culmination of these promises. Jesus doesn't feed 100 people, but the gospels, in the Gospels, he feeds, what, 5,000 and then 4,000, right? Not just random numbers of way more amounts of people, right? They're multitudes upon great multitudes. Jesus will not pay the financial debt of some creditor, but the spiritual debt of his people with his precious blood. Everything is elevated because in Jesus, everything what is final. When, the, when we encounter the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels, right, they are not just signs that point then to one greater to come, but they are signs of the kingdom. Why? Because Jesus says the kingdom is here. And we can say amen to that. But perhaps more than anything, in Jesus we see the heart of God in fuller and deeper ways. In Jesus, we see the compassion of God for his people in fuller and deeper ways who were like sheep without a shepherd. All miracles or signs point to a future reality, and the future reality comes to us in Jesus. And what this should do for us this morning, one, is we think about where this lands, which ultimately, where do we see God's false expression of his compassion for us in Jesus? It's on the cross. There's no bigger picture of that. We have to begin then to see the cross in light of 2 Kings 4. But what this should be doing for us this morning is change the way that we begin to see the cross, right? The cross, the most brutal form of punishment and the instrument of death that produced unimaginable suffering for one is at the same time the means of full restoration for many. It is the means of full restoration for your forgiveness full restoration for your atonement, full restoration in your justification and your peace with God, full restoration in your relationship between others and God himself, that you would dwell with him forever as the book of Revelation points to. Jesus secured that for you, and by faith, he is the means of that full restoration. But that's not all that it is. The cross is also the place where we see the compassion of God in its deepest and fullest sense, where we get a window into the heart of God for you. And what is that window? Essentially says what you need, Jesus supplies. 
And that's how God views you. He looks at you, not with judgment this morning because of Christ, not, not with sort of this um, angst, uh, what have you done for me lately? He looks at you as a shepherd uh, to, to sheep without a shepherd. He looks at you with compassion. That is how the cross begins. That's how we begin to see the cross differently. He supplies what we need. If we went back for a second and we thought about the original audience to this book, um, you know, we, we talked about this. This is the, 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 the group of, of Israelites who are in captivity in Babylon. And we said last week how much of what God is doing through this, he's saying, I want my ways to be your ways. And last week we looked at mercy. And this week we're looking at compassion. And it's one of those things that as we begin to take in, right, the, the wonders of God and his love for us, it's not just that God had mercy on us and we should receive that, which we should, but he wants us to be people who what? Who show mercy. Well, the same thing here with compassion, right? As we begin to drink deep of, of the gospel, as we begin to see this picture of God's love for us, he doesn't just want us to receive that compassion. He wants us to be people who give compassion. And I just needed to draw this out because this is what's unique about this original audience. They're in Babylon. They're in a pagan place, right? They're, they're in the worst of the worst situations. And God is telling them, I want you to have compassion. And I'm sure they're probably thinking, right, okay, I guess we can be more compassionate towards each other. But actually, when you go to the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, like we read, what does Jeremiah tell them? I want you, I want you to build homes, gardens. I want you to work for the welfare of the city. I want you to pray for this place. And I know some of us hear that text a lot in different, you know, contexts. But when we hear it in the context of God's people being captive, held captive in Babylon who are probably bags packed and ready for God to deliver them out, to fully restore them back to the land. What he's telling them to do is, is to manifest this compassion, the same compassion I have for you, and praying for this pagan lost city. Jesus doesn't want you to receive what it is he supplies. He wants us to come out. He wants us to be, um, he wants us to, to, to be this for the world that the ways of God might become our ways. And if we, just as we said last week with, with mercy, as we'll say with compassion, the only way that becomes true in the life of a Christian is if you are convinced that God really loves you, which draws us back to the miracles in general. It's a window into his heart. It's a window into the way that he is willing to restore and meet the needs of his people who are suffering, who have needs greater than what they can supply, Needs that, that they have come about for various reasons. But he is here to restore them. And in Christ, we see the fullest picture of this. Who gives himself for us. So that we might be restored back to God. I'll close with this. this, is, this, this I'm going to do some more thinking about this. But I want, you, I want you to think about how we know this is true. And we talk about it being uh, the, what the cross does for us is it, is it always shows us God's love and especially his compassion for us. But in Luke 4, verse 17 to 21, Jesus is sort of a text where Jesus is beginning his ministry. And he goes into the synagogue, and this is what the text says, that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. And this is what, he, what it reads. Verse 18 uh, in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, Jesus says. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's reading Isaiah. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight of the blind, to set the liberty, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke writes this as he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back uh, to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. As I said, Jesus is reading from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 61 in our Bibles. They didn't have chapters back then, but it's more likely when, we, when you read sections of, of, of when, when New Testament writers quote Old Testament texts, it's more likely that, that more of that text was being read than just what was put there. And I went back and I read Isaiah 61, and, and I went down a little bit further. In verse 7, here's what Jesus would have read. Here's what he would be saying when he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting Friends, the cross is where Jesus, our older brother, right, gives us what is rightfully his. That's the double portion. He takes our shame, as he's reading, on that cross that we might receive, right, the full restoration of God. But he gives us, he gives us his double portion, his inheritance, what is rightfully his, his, his righteousness, his status before God, all of the things that he deserves, he gives that to us. So why? So that you, friends, might dwell in the presence of the Lord. That you might have everlasting joy in the presence of the Father. And I don't know about you this morning, but friends, that is compassion on steroids. It certainly pales in comparison to the things that we just read in the prophet Elisha. I know that my compassion has not reached those levels, but God's has. And in Jesus, you have seen it. And you see his compassion. You see his heart, the fullness and the deepest, uh, in the fullest and deepest ways imaginable. Because you see that what you need, he supplies. And he is quick to do it every time. May this be grace for us, friends, grace to persevere in this post-Easter series, grace to persevere in the areas of life that God has you at this point, that he's not left you, right? And that actually what he's doing is moving closer and closer to show you more and more of who he is, what he thinks about you, and his compassion for you demonstrated and, and, and finished in the life and work of Jesus Christ for you. Do you know that this morning? You know that this morning, that this is the way the Father feels about you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I think about what it might be like for an, a tr an all-knowing, transcendent, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent God to try to communicate who he is to a creation that rebels against him, that is sinful and doesn't want to know your ways. 
but you keep pushing forward. And as we attempt to connect some of these dots about who Jesus is and what this means about who you are, I pray that we would see this in its clearest forms as a window into your heart of what you think about us, about who you are and how you move toward, towards us. And, and, and it's not that Jesus is just another sign that something else greater is coming. No, he is it. That when he on the cross screams out, it is finished, that is exactly what this means. We have seen all that we need to see of your beauties and wonders in him. And while we will never fully understand or take in uh, what that is and the compassion and, and the depths of that, would we feed upon that as much as we can so as to be restored in the ways that you call us to be restored as your people and your promises? That our faith would be strengthened, that our hope would be uh, returned if, if, if for those where we are in seasons where I'm not sure if there is light at the end of this tunnel, and that we would know of the joy that awaits us because of what our older brother has done for us. We give you thanks for this, and we pray that you'd now go with us as we feast at your table together. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.